cat that's tails on fire. Welcome to Misfits on Vinyl. My name is Spencer Straker. I am an actor, comedian, and one of your hosts. My name is Aaron. I am also one of your hosts. And I am talking loudly because I've been quiet as fuck. And, and we also have to speak louder to get picked up by the microphone. Yes, I mean, we were in, in a different location. Yeah. Um, we're at Aaron's place. Yeah, we're at my house. <laughs> <laughs> we're, at, we're at Aaron's place, and I just lit his cat's tail on fire by accident. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, his cat was walking across my computer, and I went to push uh, him back, or her, uh, her, her, went to push her back, and then her fucking tail went right into the goddamn candle. And uh, immediately it was just like, poof, just stinks like burnt hair. Yeah, she didn't light up, but she singed some hairs. Um, so I'm sure that felt nice. Um, it was right near a bubble, too. You gave my cat a Brazilian. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm getting for. Giving cats uh, 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 unwanted hair removal. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's interesting. We're in my place. We've never been. We've never done it here before. I've done it here before. Yeah. But we've never done. We've it never done it here before. This is my first time here. Yeah. Well, welcome to Mi Casa. Yeah. Um, e casa es su casa. Yeah, it's not that like I wouldn't want to spend time. I just don't like people over. Yeah. No, I feel that I. Whereas I feel like <laughs> your cats are just going crazy already. <laughs> That's also why we haven't done it here. <laughs> there we go. Dude, I'm not going to lie. Watching you struggle with trying to get the, the knobs up there was pretty funny. <laughs> My cat's like, she likes to tempt fate and play with the blind string, so. Well, and uh, in all fairness, uh, she's got nine lives. She's now down to eight. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> So. It's funny that you lit a candle so that it would smell nice in here, and then immediately your cat was just like, I'm gonna burn my asshole. Yeah, yeah, well, I lit a candle because my cats had like vicious diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but like she's had diarrhea like the past two days. So now I have a question. Yes. Does cat diarrhea make you want to be sick? Any diarrhea makes me <laughs> I have the weakest sense of smell of all time. Like, it's not even like. My, my gag reflex, like literally, you sent me a picture of your shit. <laughs> I almost threw up. Well, I threw up one time. I almost threw up here on the podcast. But it's like <laughs> the smell of it. Like, <laughs> and she's young. Like the older one is fine, but she's young. And <laughs> she fucking our bedroom is attached to the bathroom, and the litter box is in the bathroom. And we'll be sleeping, and it's happened more than once where we both woke it up. Me and Sarah. Because of the smell of shit. Oh, Jesus so Sarah's Christ. Sarah's like, is that you? And I'm like, no, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's the fucking cats. She's like, is that you? You're like, no. <laughs> Check the sheets. Check the sheets. Throw these brown sheets. No, but fucking, yeah, I don't know. We changed our food. Yeah, use red better. sheets. It's been better. <laughs> I fart blood. <laughs> Gross. Uh, it's been better when we switched our food over. Um, but our vet gave us a scared talking to. We were feeding them fancy feast. Mm. It's affordable. And the vet was like, that's like feeding your kids McDonald's every day. I was like, what's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you would say that too, it's like, 
I'm sorry. Do you do you, do you know me? I I that is my diet. Yeah, I, I'm fat. It's <laughs> like you, dude. Like obviously, I'm gonna fuck. It's eat. a miracle. Both my cats have been described as healthy weight. And yeah, they 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 look like slender animals. The older one is very athletic looking. Yeah, he looks like a mini tiger. Yeah, goose. Goose. Well, Gus is his name. Gustavo. Yeah, I named him after Gus Spring. Yeah, and then Dot, we call her Dot because she's got a, a dot on her head and she's kind of a simpleton. Yeah. So, and Dot is the lead character in this season of Fargo. There you go. Yeah. Which comes out on Tuesday the 21st of Amazing. November. Amazing. So, I guess I can announce it yeah. now. I'm on fucking Fargo this season. Fuck yeah. Dude. They can't cut me now that it's coming out. <laughs> uh, but imagine they... You watch it and you drink. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's happened to me before. I, I'm pretty confident that I'm not going to... It, whoa, there goes nuts. I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident that I'm not going to get cut from uh, this, though. Because I have... All of my scenes are with John Hamm or Juno Temple or Joe Keery. Nice. So I, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty confident that it's like... No, I'm not gonna get cut. You know, I was working with those people, dude. It was amazing. Uh, first off, John Hamm, coolest dude ever. Like, very, very cool. I've heard um, that, and I know he's a massive hockey fan. He's a huge hockey fan, dude. We spent four hours the one day talking about hockey, and he would just be like name dropping. He's like, "Yeah, my friend Brett Hall," and you know, you're just like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, he's a Blues fan. Yeah, dude. He's a St. Louis Blues fan. It's also one of the funniest things that I, uh, well, two things. One, uh, John Hamm nicknamed me the fart uh, because he said my character is silent but deadly. <laughs> so so uh, I was nicknamed the fart by John Hamm, which I thought was pretty funny. But then we were also, uh, we're sitting there, and it was like the week before the Super Bowl this year, and uh, we're like sitting and holding, and uh, uh, John Hamm goes, yeah, you know, this is the first time that I haven't been to the Super Bowl in probably 10 years. And then Joe Keery goes, you've been to the Super Bowl every year? And then John Hamm goes, yeah, it's one of the things you get to do when you're really famous. <laughs> 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 and I just watched Steve Harrington die a little on the inside. That's funny. It was, it was pretty good. That's funny. Uh, but yeah, Fargo, it's coming out. It's going to be, uh, it's gonna be on, uh, on uh, uh, FX, so in Canada it'll be on... Disney Plus in the States, it'll be on Hulu. Nice. And anywhere else, I don't know, scream it illegally, I don't give a fuck, I don't get royalties from it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's what you're fighting for, Kate. Yeah. Uh, laptop. There's a new key that opened up. <laughs> don't know what you pressed there, kid. Um, this is Dot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dot. Would you like to do a catch up? <laughs> Dude, it's like an accordion kitty. Yeah, she's, she's a cutie. <laughs> Don't squeeze her too hard. <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna try to do nothing to her because I'm yeah. already lit her on fire. It's true. <laughs> you know, it's I didn't. True. I didn't mean to light your cat on fire. Good point. But yeah, this is this is cool that we're we've been talking about. We mentioned on the podcast uh, a couple episodes ago that yeah, we're gonna be bouncing around a couple different spaces. Yeah, recording kind of where we can, when we can, um, keeping our our schedule consistent. So we're going to be, we got, we're recording tomorrow as well, Yep. but that's going to be in studio. So we're just kind of trying to fill in episodes here and there. And and I think it's going to be nice because we've got kind of a, a rollout plan until the end of the year. And then we've got some guests that are going to be coming on. 
uh, <laughs> later on over Zoom. Uh, but we've got uh, like uh, a couple of guests that are going to be in person before yep. the end of the year here, which I'm excited about. Uh, one of them is going to be our second recurring guest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Technically. Technically. Because we'll talk about mostly the same stuff we did the first time, but we'll actually hit record this time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we'll hit save. We'll hit save. save. Yes. yes. <laughs> I was confused when I was like, ooh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, fuck. But, uh, yeah, so that's happening, and uh, uh, starting um, on the 20th, you can uh, check us out on Amazon Music uh, yes. on the front page. We're being featured. So. Yeah, it's, uh, I, didn't, I didn't even realize last week when we talked about that was what was happening with it. So, yeah, pretty yeah. Sure featured. I'm featured, featured which is pretty fucking sick. <laughs> that's pretty fucking amazing. It's not bad for a couple of idiots that don't know what they're talking about with music. Yeah. You know, like, it's actually, like, kind of impressive. We've done, this is now episode 48, we've probably were recorded 50 something episodes mm-hmm. and uh now we're getting the the pat on the back from amazon that uh we're doing good there you go well speaking of idiots talking about music we should get into the music should a couple of idiots talk about let's, music let's get into music <laughs> so every episode on misfits on vinyl we review an album sometimes it's one of our favorites sometimes it's one that's very popular sometimes there's a crossover today it's probably in that venn diagram um the album that we're reviewing as according to the title is steely dan's Debut album, Can't Buy a Thrill. Mm-hmm. Woo! Yeah! Uh, it was released by ABC Records in November of 1972. It was recorded in August of 72 at the Village Recorder in West L.A. Uh, it's a yacht rock, jazz rock, soft rock, folk rock, and pop album. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it is produced by four-time Grammy nominee Gary Katz. Katz also worked with the Mamas and the Papas, uh, Stephen Wolf. And Three Dog Night. Steppenwolf. They're Canadian. They are Canadian. Well, some of them are Canadian. I think if I... I know some of them are American, some of them are Canadian. It's kind of like the band. Yeah. Where, like, they're... Like, half of them are Canadian, so they get put into the uh, 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 Canadian Music Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Or the National Music Center. That makes sense. Um, and uh, uh, he also had broad experience with A&R, responsible for signing artists such as Jim Crouch... Uh, Shaka Khan, Rufus, and Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett. Rip, R.I.P. Rip Jimmy Buffett. Uh, when he died, I was very confused because I didn't understand why buffets were going away. Yeah, I was confused. I was like, all the restaurants, all the margarita bills? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're wasting away now. Yeah, they are. They are. <laughs> How many Jimmy Buffett songs can you name? Uh, Cheeseburger in Paradise. Yeah. Margaritaville. Yeah. Uh, that's it. He's got one with Zach Bryan on toes. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. And he's got one with Alan Jackson, uh, which I thought was pretty good. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's good uh, Good old people music. Yeah, it's good. It's like it's like uh, the Bruce Springsteen of Florida. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It really is the Bruce Springsteen of Florida. Uh, the title of the album is referring to the opening line of a Bob Dylan song. It takes a lot to laugh. It takes a train to cry. Mm. Which I think is interesting. Yeah. Wouldn't have gotten Can't Buy a Thrill from that. But uh, I suppose so. Uh, The album cover features a a photo montage by Robert Lockhart. Uh, It includes an image of a line of prostitutes standing in a red light area in Rouen, France, uh, waiting for clients, which was chosen because of its relevance to the album title. Uh, Walter Becker and Donald Fagan uh, expressed their opinion of the album art in their liner notes to the reissue of The Royal Scam, in which they said the Royal Scam possessed the most hideous album cover of the 70s, bar none, 
except for Can't Buy a Thrill. Uh, the cover was banned in Francisco's Franco's Spain and replaced by a photograph of the band playing in concert. Nice. Which is pretty lame. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't find it a particularly offensive album cover. No. <laughs> There's been a lot worse. So There's been much worse. I feel like uh, 90% of the stuff that came out in the 90s yes. was much worse. Yes. You know? Nirvana put a naked child on the cover. Well, you could see, like, it looks like a, like a pop art montage you'd see at, like, a museum or something. Like a, yeah. like a Warhol knockoff sort of deal. Yeah. Or it looks like what an art student would do, you know, mm-hmm. to, to be edgy. Yes. Like, that's what it kind of looks like. Yeah, like at the UFC. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is edgy, man. No, it's not. For all those that couldn't get into arts at ACAD, (laughs) there's UFC. (laughs) (laughs) University of Calgary. We weren't your first choice. (laughs) No. (laughs) Are you an engineer or in business? No. Fuck you. (laughs) UFC. The University of Calgary, come for our music hall and nothing else. <laughs> Are you into art? You want to go in a basement full of asbestos that smells like piss? For making $4,000 a semester? You want to roll you in the ground with some silverfish? Yeah. You want to walk outside and dance with the leaves? <laughs> you see. You want to still get called a faggot by everyone in other arts departments? Yes. You have seen. <laughs> Classic. Oh, it's a Classic. school. It's a school. It's a school. Shout out to UC. Technically our alma mater. Yeah, technically. I, I wonder if they'll I wonder if they'll post about our success with the podcast. <laughs> Multidisciplinary. <laughs> it's a good way of saying a jack of all trades, a master of none. <laughs> oh, that's what I am. Yeah. Uh, okay, two songs recorded during the Camp I Love sessions were left off the album and released as a single. It was Dallas uh, with Sail the Waterway. Uh, this is the only Steely Dan album to include David Palmer as the lead vocalist, having been recruited after Donald Fagan expressed concerns over singing live. Drummer Jim Hodder uh, contributes lead vocals on one song, Midnight Cruiser, sometimes called Midnight Cruiser. I don't know why it's it, it's quite literally the same thing. Uh, he also sang Dallas. By the time of recording the next album, uh, the band and producer Gary Katz had convinced Fagan to assume the lead vocal role. So, so one thing I was reading about this is, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it too, but Fagan had a serious stage fright. Oh. So that's why Palmer was recruited to sing. He only sings on Dirty Work. That's the only song he sings on this album. Really? From, from my understanding, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's correct. Fact check me if you, if you want to. But I'm pretty sure he's, he, that's the only song he sings on it. And, because that's why the vo- vocals are so different on that song, like, Fagan's got, like, this weird, like, sort of, like, sarcastic sort of delivery yeah. to his, where, like, Palmer sounds more like a classic, like, blues singer, like, that was popular at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a weird, yeah, like, Dirty Work's a great song, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't sound like any other, the other songs on there. No. And and it's weird because like I, I would say their other two like big singles off of this album, uh, Do It Again and uh, Reeling in the Years, mm-hmm. sound more cohesive to the album yes. than uh, Dirty Work does. But I think that Dirty Work is the best song on the album. Yeah. So I mean I don't know you know, uh, uh, fair enough though. 
Alright, music journalist Paul Lester, Lester the Molester, uh, said it incorporates mambo, swing, jazz, and Latin musical elements. Oh, our friend! Music critic Stephen Thomas Earlwine noted yeah. that there are a, a very few of the jazz flourishes that came to distinguish their later albums, but added that the first single on the album, Do It Again, incorporates a tight Latin jazz beat, while the second single, Reeling in the Years, features jazzy guitar solos and harmonies. Uh, Robert Christgau uh, described it, at, uh, Do It Again, as a toned-down mambo song with tragic lyrics about a compulsive loser. <laughs> I didn't know they wrote about me. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so Fire in the Hole, which uh, features angry stro uh, strident piano by Fagan, uh, takes its title from a phrase used by American soldiers in Vietnam, and alludes to the many soldiers who evaded the draft in the late 60s and early 70s, Becker and Fagan included. Uh, now, something really funny about that, did you ever hear about the stories about, like, the, the guys that would go into the rat holes in, in Nam? Yeah, I've heard a little bit about okay. this, yeah. So what's really crazy is that a lot of Australians uh, were drafted specifically to go into the rat holes because they were short and small. Like, and so they, like, these, these soldiers would be basically trained to go into these fucking tiny crawl spaces where there's, like, you know, booby traps everywhere, and, mm. you know, you can't move and turn around, and someone might come up behind you and stab you in the ass with a bayonet. Uh, wow. Yeah, and so, like, a lot of these guys would just have to fucking do that. There's something similar like that in World War One as well, where they would dig holes to the other side's trenches, like, small holes, and they'd sometimes run into each other. And they would like fight to the death and like like this like fucking stab oh. yeah and, like a fucking tiny asshole fuck dude fucking um in Peaky Blinders Shelby Tommy Shelby that's it was his job in World War One fuck dude so that's a little yeah that's where I knew about that but yeah they like crawl through the holes and they fight each other like hand to hand combat in like probably like a hole like that wide that's terrifying yeah yeah I hate that and they were all like fifteen oh god that's so fucking scary <laughs> dude. The, the thought of war terrifies me because I'm a pussy. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. I fucking, I would not do well in the army. That's why I'm keeping my, my form, my shape. So <laughs> I just, if I ever get drafted, I'd be like, no, sorry, I can't run. You know what my secret weapon is? My little dick. <laughs> yeah. I would go in for a physical and they'd be like, no. <laughs> not a chance. They'd be like, this micro penis is not going. Not a chance. Not going not into the chance. army. Yeah. He does not have the colonies to be a fucking soldier. I'd be like, did you cut it off? <laughs> <laughs> There's one there. Dude, you know it's bad when my dick can be described as a big clip. <laughs> uh, okay, all tracks were written by Walter Becker and Donald Fagan. It was engineered by Roger Nichols. He's a seven-time Grammy winner, mostly with Steely Dan, except in 1997 when he mixed John Denver's children's album, which was John Denver's only Grammy win. Wow. Um, he also worked with the Beach Boys, who we talked about last week, uh, Stevie Wonder, Kenny Loggins, Karazi Stills, and Nash, and Steely Dan biographer Brian Sweet disclosed in 2018 that Nichols had been fired in early 2002 when recording sessions for Everything Must Go at New York City's River Sound resumed. Uh, having been suspended after the 9-11 attacks without Nichols' participation or knowledge. Sweet's updated revision of his book, Reeling in the Years, stated he was cut off without any notification or justification, and Nichols was devastated to be treated in such a manner by his friends and after 30 years of working together. Ouch. That is 
the most heartbreaking thing to happen on 9-11. But, <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't surprise me because Becker and Fagan are like a two-team. That's yeah. it. Like they used session musicians. They didn't let any of the touring musicians recording the music. They played a lot of the instruments on the album themselves. Yeah. Um, they wanted like complete control over everything they're doing. They had that weird, like, some we've talked about it even last episode with Brian Wilson. Uh, that weird strive for perfection. Yeah. That, like, overconsumed them to the point where, like, you know, nothing was ever perfect. Um, even their biggest hit, like, I read a quote um, from Fagan talking about Reeling in the Years, where he was like, yeah, that's a boring song. Fuck, dude. Yeah, yeah. Fuck. <laughs> He's like, yeah, that song kind of sucks. It's weird because it doesn't. It's yeah, I like know. great. <laughs> I know, but compared to like the weird, you know, like the stuff they're doing for them, which is, you know, really in the years is too simple for them. It's a little, you know, generic. It's got a, you know, a regular, like uh, I heard, I was watching a video about them and the way the guy described the song, like they viewed it as like, they were just trying to show people that they could also, you know, make a rock song of the era. It's so annoying, though, because that, that, that fucking guitar is so I know, iconic. It's, it's a perfect solo. It's a perfect solo. Yes, yes. But they think it's boring. Yeah. But those are the type of musicians that Becker and Fagan are. They're just like, unless they're making something like, overly complicated or you know like like wilson fucking around with dy- dynamic chords and orchestras and his you wall know. of sound yes <laughs> yes they're they're not happy you know which is weird so basically like they're like uh they're like uh they're like a non-confident version of paul and john yeah they you know they remind me a lot of Fred Durst from Limp <laughs> Just a strive for perfection. A strive for perfection. Dude, how do you feel about Country Durst? I saw that. It's yeah. fucking terrifying. <laughs> it's so scary. <laughs> I love the video where it's just like, it's like, <laughs> your therapist, uh, uh, Country Fred Durst can't hurt you. It's not real. And then it's just like Fred Durst on stage in a cowboy hat doing yeah. break stuff. Ugh. Still better than Florida Georgia Line. Honestly, yeah, yes. I fucking no. Like, I would put Fred Durst in the in more of country than Florida Georgia Line. Fair. Uh, okay, so about the artist, uh, we're gonna rifle through these here. Donald Fagan was born in uh, Pasek, New Jersey, on January tenth, nineteen forty eight, to Jewish parents Joseph Jerry Fagan, an accountant, and his wife Eleanor, a homemaker who also sang, sw- uh, who was a s- swing singer in upstate uh, New York's Catskill Mountains from childhood through her teen years. Uh, his family moved to Fairlawn, a small town near Pasek, uh, when he was 10 years old. He moved with his parents and younger sisters to Kendall Park, a newly constructed suburban section of South Brunswick, New Jersey. Uh, the transition upset him. He <laughs> detested living in the suburbs. He later recalled that it was like a prison. I think I lost faith in my parents' judgment. It was probably the first time I realized I had my own view of life. His life in Kendall Park, including his teenage love of late uh, night radio, inspired his later album, The Nightfly. Yes. Which is pretty impressive. And it's funny because a lot of, uh, you know, uh, during the 50s, there was the big boom of, of the suburbs. Like, that was that was where the suburbs really came into play. Everyone came back from the war. It was like, you know, 
uh, cities were sprawling and like everyone could have their own little piece of land and you're out in the fucking middle of the you know boonies and uh, a lot of uh, uh, women that were like homemakers ended up getting addicted to Prozac because uh, it was prescribed to them because they were like I'm sad and like really the reason they were sad was because they're in the middle of fucking nowhere and they have nothing to do uh, but the doctors were like just drug her up she'll be good and so then all these fucking moms are all depressed and they're all like looped out of their brain and the dads are fucking gone most of the time because they spend, you know, 45 minutes to an hour and a half each day commuting. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, so you have these kids that are just left to their own fucking devices in the middle of the suburbs and they all hated it. Like, you get the same thing from like, uh, you hear the same thing from Rush, you know, like all of those guys talking about the suburbs of Toronto. And mm-hmm. Well, I don't think it's uncommon, like, even now, like, I grew up in the suburbs and... My parents were gone and worked, wouldn't get back to work till like 6, 6.30. So, like, I'd come home from school, I'd walk home from school, it was like a 10-minute walk, and I'd have, like, three hours to fuck around and do whatever I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's like, you know, sneak in an extra ginger ale, like, <laughs> play video games, not do your fucking homework, like, uh, fuck off for like a couple hours. It was honestly like, kind of great in that regard. I mean, I grew up on a farm, and like, so you know, I had to go home and do chores. But it, it realistically, still up to my own fucking devices yes. at a certain point. I remember getting off the bus and like my like because we had eighty acres right in our like yard. Like mm-hmm. our yard was just a fenced in eighty acres, nice. which is fucking massive. But like, uh, I'd get off the bus and my horse would be there. And so I'd just hop on his back and just see where he'd fucking go. <laughs> no saddle, no fucking bridle or anything. I'd just hop on his back, sit on him, he'd fucking run up hills, and I'd just be there. You know? Nice. I, I could have broke my arm. Yeah. I could have done something stupid. Yeah. But I was not bored. I would do that here, too. I would, like, get out of school, <laughs> I'd unhitch my horse, and I'd ride him home. You'd, you'd find the neighbor's horse. I'd park it in the garage. <laughs> park it back it into the garage, and... Yeah. <laughs> fucking hell, dude. Plug it in. <laughs> dude, where do you plug it in? <laughs> Hose in the butt. Uh, okay, Fagan became interested in rock and rhythm and blues in the late 1950s. Uh, the first record he bought was Reelin' and Rockin' by Chuck Berry. At age 11, a cousin recommended jazz music, and Fagan went to Newport Jazz Festival, uh, becoming what he called a jazz snob. I lost interest in rock and roll and started developing an antisocial personality, which he carried on throughout his whole life, it appears. Um, In the early 60s, beginning at age 12, he often went to the village vanguard where he participated, or where he particularly was impressed by Earl Hines, Willie the Lion Smith, and Bill Evans. Uh, He regularly took the bus to Manhattan to see performances by jazz musicians Charles Mingus, Sonny Rollins, Telonius Monk and Miles Davis. Nice. Those were hard to say. Uh, he learned to play the piano and he played baritone horn in the high school marching band. Uh, he developed a lifelong fondness for table tennis in his late teens and was drawn to soul music, funk, Motown, and Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, he was he has expressed admiration for the Boswell sisters, Henry Mancini, and Ray Charles. After graduating from South Brunswick High School in 1965, inspired by Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, and uh, Lawrence Ferenghetti, he enrolled at Bard College to study English literature. Nice. He wanted to be a poet. He wanted to be a poet. And he already know it. One thing I do find cool, though, about 
he's got an appreciation for jazz, which is very obvious in the dance yeah. music. Which is cool because at the time everybody was doing the blues thing. Yeah. So they were doing something different at the time where everybody was leaning on blues rock. Yeah. That was, you know, your Zeppelins and all that sort of stuff was all blues inspired. Um, and he went the other way and was like, fucking, we're going to do jazz, we're going to do Latin, we're going to do all yeah. sorts of different stuff. So he's got an eclectic bunch of inspirations for, particularly this album, but the later albums as well. But, um, you know, he takes from a lot of different styles of music on this album that wasn't the popular go around at the time. Totally. And, and like, and, and, and you see it in their later albums for sure more clearly, I would mm-hmm. say even. But it's funny because, like, you, you made a good point with that because if you think about, like, who was big at the time, you had, like, the Beatles, you had, like, uh, you know, the Beatles had just ended, obviously, yeah. but, like, you had, you know, the Beatles and Zeppelin and all these Long bands. Songs. Yeah, they were all super blues influenced. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they were kind of the shift, like, and them incorporating jazz into it is kind of what created Yacht Rock. Yeah. You know? Um, you said it the last time we did Steely Dan, but... Steely Dan is like your favorite yacht rocker's favorite yacht rock yeah, band, yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which is very true because they 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 did kind of define a genre by doing something completely different. Oh, it's like um, well, same thing for I got that from you, like too. I'm asking you what your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. Yeah, yeah, same sort of thing. Right? Yeah, yeah. Which is uh, which is true, but I I definitely like Steely Dan a little more than MF Doom. Okay, so Fagan and Becker met in 1967 at Bard College, uh, in Annandale on Hudson in New York. As Fagan passed by a cafe, the Red Balloon, he heard Becker practicing the electric guitar. In an interview, Fagan recounted the experience. I hear this guy practicing, and it sounded very professional and contemporary. It sounded like, you know, like a black person, really. He introduced himself to Becker and asked, do you want to be in a band? And discovering that they enjoyed similar music, the two began writing songs together. How progressive, folks. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, that sounds good. It can't be a white. Yeah, it's like, that can't be a white guy. Oh, shit. <laughs> nice. <laughs> He's like, you're white and you're good at music? No way. Damn. <laughs> Fuck, dude. <laughs> uh, Becker and Fagan began playing in local groups, one such group known as Don Fagan Jazz Trio, uh, the Bad Rock Group, and later the Leather Canary, <laughs> included future comedy star Chevy Chase on drums. Uh, and they played covers of songs by the Rolling Stones, uh, Moby Grape, and Willie Dixon. As well as some original compositions. Chevy Chase walked by, and you hear the guy playing music, he walked, he's like, oh, thank God it's not black. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, oh, yes, score! <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not black. I'm <laughs> eager, <laughs> <Hey>, man! <laughs> you know what's, like, interesting about that, though? Like, uh, on, a, on a side note, like, uh, you know, obviously, like, uh, the, the OG, like, the first fucking SNL group yes. was pretty pretty uh, in- incredible in that they were all, like, gifted in multiple, you know, different yes. styles of art, you know? Like, it was, like, they're all really good actors and improvisers and comedians and singers and, like, you know, they could do a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1973, 
they were uh, a part of the like Chevy Chase and John Belushi, and I think Dan Aykroyd was in this. Gilda Radner was probably in this as well. But they were a part of the very first uh, iteration of National Lampoon's Lemmings, which was a mock of Woodstock, and it was oh. a musical. And John Belushi plays this like absolutely just cracked out version of like a rock singer at a Woodstock event. And he, it's so funny, dude. I have the I have the vinyl. It's it's an enjoyable fucking listen. But it was it was surprising to find out that Chevy Chase used to play drums in in you know a group with Steely Dan musicians yeah. because I think that you know I've always associated uh like the the OG SNL people as like oh like Belushi and Aykroyd are like oh. the musicians of the group you know like they're they're obviously the ones that are uh, the musicians you know with Blues mm-hmm. Brothers and stuff like that. But seeing that other people were also capable of it is, is uh, kind of a testament, I think, to why the show was as good as it was well, at the time. What's surprising to me is that Chevy Chase was able to work with people. <laughs> and not, not be, <laughs> be in the background. <laughs> That's yeah. like a double whammy. Dude, he was able to be a drummer. Yeah. That's and, and especially for a jazz trio. Yeah. Dude. He I, must be pretty good because like Becker and Fagan have really high standards, so like, yeah. just like using logical reasoning, you must be like a decent musician. I would be very like shocked if he wasn't, no. but I also doubt that he could do it now. No. You know, he probably would fucking be terrible. No, he could barely leave a proper voice, man. All my Chevy Chase material is locked and loaded. Oh, up. dude, I fucking you know what? It hurts because Chevy Chase is in one of my favorite movies of all time, and I love him in it. But I'm also like, oh, he's such a dick. <laughs> yeah, he's an asshole in real life. Never meet your heroes. Never meet your heroes. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, except for John Hamm, he was very nice. Yeah, you know. So I, I mean, fucking it, meet your heroes. Some of them aren't self entitled douchebags. Yeah. Only meet your heroes if they have a name like related to pork. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to meet Kevin Bacon. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Okay, so a series of demos from 1968 to 1971 are available in multiple different releases. Not authorized. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Not authorized by uh, Becker and Fagan. Uh, This collection features approximately 25 tracks and is notable for its sparse arrangements. Um, They were re-recorded for Steely Dan albums, but never officially released. In 1970, Gary Katz produced an album by Linda Hoover, I mean Shine, featuring Fagan Becker and Jeff Skunk Baxter, uh, and including five Becker and Fagan songs. The album was shelved over songwriting licensing issues, but was finally released 52 years later in 2022. Damn! That's fucking crazy. Uh, Becker and Fagan joined the touring band of Jay and the Americans for about a year and a half, where they were paid $100 per show, but partway through their tenure, the band's tour management cut their salaries in half. Group's lead singer, Jay Black, dubbed Becker and Fagan the Manson and Starkweather of rock and roll, referring to cult leader Charles Manson and spree killer Charles Starkweather. Nice. Well, that's that's certainly something. Um, they had little success after moving to Brooklyn, uh, although Barbara Streisand recorded their song, I Mean to Shine, on her 1971 album, Barbara Jones Streisand. Uh, their fortunes changed when one of Vance's associates, Gary Katz, moved to Los Angeles to become a staff producer for ABC Records. He hired Beckin and Fagan as songwriters, and they flew to California. Uh, Katz would produce all of their 70s albums in collaboration with engineer Roger Nichols, 
and Nichols would win six Grammys for his work with the band from the 1970s to 2001. What day specifically? It was uh, uh, nine. Uh, it was uh, September 11th, I believe. Oh, that's the day of the big fucking concert for the Jackson Five. Right, and it got canceled. Damn. No, it was actually the the day, day before. Out. Day before. Day before. Yeah. Day before. Because they had they had two concerts, remember? And they the one was September 10th, and the other one was like September 6th. Nothing important happened. Then. I think Howard Stern had a really good radio show. Yeah, I think sure. that was probably it. I think Louis C.K. had a really good joke about that day yeah. for some reason. I don't know. And Steve Brand <laughs> pretended he was there. Yeah, Steve Brand is easy. Made up a whole story. It was weird. <laughs> That's crazy. Pete Davidson got like you know famous because of that day. <laughs> 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 um, okay, after realizing that their songs were too complex for other ABC artists at Cat's suggestion, they formed their own band with guitarist Denny Dias and Jeff Skunk Baxter, nice. drummer Jim Hodger, and singer David Palmer, and Cat signed them to ABC as recording artists. Fans of Beat Generation literature, Becker and Fagan named the band after a revolutionary steam-powered dildo mentioned in William S. Burroughs' novel Naked Lunch. Which is pretty funny, because I always thought that it was uh, a dildo reference, but I did not think that it was actually a dildo reference. These guys are, like, fucking nerds. <laughs> yeah, they're, say, like, they're, they're, <laughs> Their references are cut way too fucking deep. They're like, hey man, we should call the band after... <laughs> we should go, you remember that book when they called it the dildo <laughs> the man? Maybe you know, we should go name our band after that. <laughs> yeah, dude, let's do it. <laughs> dude, you just did a really good Beavis impression. <laughs> Yeah, dude. That would be sick. <laughs> Remember when we were reading that beat poetry book? <laughs> beat. <laughs> there you go. Anyways. Anyways. <laughs> poetry. Nice. Alright. Uh, okay, so uh, Palmer joined as a second lead vocalist because of Fagan's occasional stage fright. We talked about this. 1972, ABC issued Steely Dan's first single, Dallas, backed with Sail the Waterway. Uh, distribution of stock copies available to the general public was apparently extremely limited. Uh, the single sold so poorly that promotional copies were much more readily available than stock copies in today's collector's market. <laughs> Which is good to know. Uh, as of 2015, Dallas and Sail the Waterway are the only officially released Steely Dan tracks that have not been reissued on cassette or compact disc. In an interview in 1995, Becker and Fagan called the songs Stinko. <laughs> nice. Weird thing to call them. Yeah. Not that they suck. <laughs> not that they stink. They're Stinko. 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 Uh, okay, so because of Fagan's reluctance to sing live, Palmer handled most of the vocals during uh, uh, on stage. During the first tour, however, Katz and Becker decided that they preferred Palmer or Fagan's interpretation of the band's songs, persuading him to take over. Palmer quietly left the group while it recorded its second album, and he later co-wrote the number two hit song Jazz Man with Carol King. Nice. Uh, Village Voice rock critic Robert Christgau has uh, was pleased with the elevation of Fagan, noting that Palmer fit in like a cheerleader at a crap game. <laughs> All right. Great metaphor. Great metaphor. <laughs> So you could just say he fit in like shit. Yeah, he, he didn't fit, fit in. He didn't fit in. Yeah. You know what? He really fit in like a like a a a a, a, a priest at a hockey game. Yeah. Like <laughs> what? Yeah, it's like yeah. <laughs> he fit in it like a like an uh, 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 an engineer in the theater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Exactly. He fit in like a, a doctor at a supermarket. Yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> he keep it going. He fit in like a like a like a a, a nurse at a Target. Nice. <laughs> that was very similar. To the last one. Yeah, he fit in like a cat's tail and a candle. <laughs> <laughs> he fit in like a dentist at a bar. Nice. Well, <laughs> dentists can go to the bar. There's no. He fit in like a dentist at a at a uh, a concert. Dentists can go to concerts too. What do you have against dentists? A lot. Yeah. <laughs> good point. Good point. Good point. Touche. All right. Touché. So uh, their second album was released in 1973. It was Countdown to Ecstasy, and it was not commercially successful as uh, their first album was. Uh, Becker and Fagan were unhappy with some of the performances on the record and believed that it sold poorly because it had been recorded hastily on tour. The album singles Showbiz Kids and My Old School, both of which stayed in the lower half of the Billboard charts, uh, though My Old School, to a lesser extent, uh, became uh, FM staples in time. Uh, then they... Uh, what does that, sorry, what the fuck did that mean? Uh, like, like in time, it became... Okay, gotcha, right gotcha. Radio gotcha, stations. Gotcha, the way you said that. It sounded like you were having a stroke. Ah, uh, no, I sort of was. Yeah. Uh, and then they released, uh, uh, Aja. Yeah. Nice. Or Aha. The Royal Scam was released in May of 1976, partially because of Carlton's prominent contributions. It was the band's most guitar-oriented album. That's not Aja, that's the Royal Scam. Yeah, that's the Royal Scam. Um, The album sold well in the United States, though without the strength of a hit single. In the UK, the single Haitian Divorce was uh, top 20 and drove album sales, becoming Steely Dan's first major hit there. Nice. Uh, their sixth album, which was Aja, the jazz-influenced one, was released in September of 1977. It reached top five in the U.S. charts within three weeks, winning the Grammy Award for Engineer. Uh, it was also one of their first American LPs to be certified platinum for sales of over one million albums. Um, cause I guess at the time, uh, a lot of the albums that were went platinum were like the Stones and yeah. fucking the Beatles and, you know, a lot of British bands, mm-hmm. not a lot of, not a lot of American stuff. It's weird that Elvis didn't go platinum in his lifetime. That's crazy. That is crazy. Uh, so, uh, uh planning to tour to support Aja, uh, Steely Dan assembled a live band, rehearsed. Uh, rehearsal ended and the tour was cancelled when backing musicians began comparing pay which is a really shady thing considering they fucking quit a tour because they weren't getting paid enough yeah um okay so after the success of that album Becker and Fagan were asked to write the title track for the movie uh FM uh the movie was a box office disaster but the song was a hit earning Steely Dan another Grammy award and it was a minor hit in the UK barely missed the top 20 in the US nice then they disbanded in June of 1981. Becker moved to Maui, where he began an avocado ranch and self-styled critic of the contemporary scene. Nice. Um, he stopped using drugs, which he had been using for most of his career. Meanwhile, Fagan released a solo album, The Night Fly, which went platinum in both the U.S. and the U.K. and yielded the top 20 hit, IGY, What a Beautiful World. In 1988, he wrote the score of Bright Lights, Big City, and a song for its soundtrack, but otherwise recorded little. He occasionally did production work for other artists, uh, as did Becker. Uh, The most prominent of these were two albums he did for the British uh, pop group China Crisis. Uh, 
Okay, uh, don't know them. Who are strongly influenced by Steely Dan. Uh, Becker is listed as an official member of China Crisis on the first of these albums. Interesting. Uh, in 1985, uh, Flaunt the Imperfection, uh, he played keyboard on the band's top 20 UK hit, Black Man Ray. Nice. Uh, for the second of these two albums, Diary of a Hollow Horse, Becker is only listed as a producer and not as a band member. Um, now, in 1986, Becker and Fagan uh, performed on Zazu, an album uh, uh, by former model Rosie Vela, and it was produced by Gary Katz, and the two rekindled the friendship and held songwriting sessions between 1986 and 87, and leaving the results unfinished, in October 23rd of 1991, Becker attended a concert by New York Rock and Soul Review, uh, co-founded by Fagan and producer... Libby Titus, who for many years was the partner of Levon Helm of the band, and would later become Fagan's wife. Nice. And spontaneously performed with the group. Becker produced Fagan's second solo album, Kama Karade. Kama Karade. That's the one where it goes, Kama 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 Karadia. <laughs> right? That's the one, right? No, that's not the one. No. That's, that's uh, Karma Kama 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 I know. Come and go. Come and go. Dude, I know my whale, okay? <laughs> I know it's fucking Boy George, but what's the name of the fucking band? It's uh, it's uh, Culture, Culture Club. Club. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Okay, so in 19, uh, 1993, he convinced... Uh, oh, no, I said something coming to my mind. I'm keeping it to myself. No, 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 go. I was going to say, Wham and Boy George have one thing in common. They're dead? No, I'll leave it. You guys put the, the Put the dots together on that one. Something with public bathrooms. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> okay, they reunited in 1993 and planned a tour to help promote Kama uh, Karade. Uh, in 2001, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In September th- uh, 3rd of 2017, Walter Becker passed away, and Donald Fagan continues touring as Steely Dan to this day. Nice. You Are powered we... through that. That was fucking difficult. Yeah. Notable tracks. Do it again. Reeling in the ears. Dirty work. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's that's it for their fucking notable no, tracks. No, there's another good one on it. Let me... I don't know where the fuck I put my phone. There's another song I was looking for on it. I forget the name of it, but that's okay. Midnight Cruiser? That's the one. That's the one. Sometimes known as Midnight Cruiser. Mm. Alternatively, <laughs> also known as Midnight Cruiser. Also known as Midnight Cruiser. Could also be referred to as Midnight Cruiser. Uh, or or as Midnight Cruiser. Occasionally noted as Midnight Cruiser. Or or if you're French, Midnight Cruiser. Oui, Cruiser. Oui, Wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> uh, okay, so reception of the album, all music, uh, its aggregate score sits at a four point five out of five. Respect. Rolling Stone four out of five. Pitchfork eight point six out of ten. It was U.S. Billboard's uh, top LPs and tapes. It was number seventeen. Do It Again was number six on the Hot 100. Reeling in the Years was number eleven on the Hot 100. It was certified RIAA Gold on May. Uh, in 1973, and Platinum in 93. Uh, All Music's uh, uh, resident uh, uh, guy, Stephen Thomas Earlwine, nice. our boy, uh, our boy uh, said that the songs on the album subvert traditional conventions and are tightly constructed with interlocking chords and gracefully interwoven melodies buoyed by clever cryptic lyrics. 
It's a lot. Uh, in a retrospect review for BBC Music, Paul Lester, uh, the molester, uh, said... <laughs> okay, don't throw that out there. <laughs> I don't know that about Paul Lester. I don't know that either. I just, I just, whenever I hear Lester, I just think the molester. I don't know. It's, it's an unfortunate thing that has just been associated with the name Lester. I'm sorry, Paul. I didn't, I, I didn't mean that. I, don't sue me. Um... In a retrospect review for BBC Music, Paul Lester said the album is so fully formed that you could scarcely believe that it's their debut and contains tightly constructed songs with dazzling hooks, clever cryptic lyrics, and vocals that are off that offer teasing critiques for those that want them. Nice. Alright, so Paul Lester is a good dude. Let's review this. Let's right. review this. So every every week we review on technical musical lyrics, album art, reception, and does it hold up? Technical! Alright, so this is this is kind of an interesting one because this album, uh, you know, a lot of the albums that we talk about, uh, you know, sometimes they have a lot of session musicians yeah. come in and sometimes they're uh, you know, just like last week like we talked about with uh, uh Pet Sounds, it's not a lot of session musicians, it's fuck well there is, but it's Man, also 60. Yeah, it's sixty, but it's also a lot of Brian Wilson just doing shit as yes. well. Um so, technically on this one, though, they are only having to, like, Roger Nichols is only having to really layer fucking six instruments. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, two vocals, right? Um, but I would say that he's done a really good job at it to the point where, like, it does still sound crisp and holds up today. So, when it comes to the technical element of this, and I mean, he's won fucking Grammys for everything he's done with them, except for this album. Like, this is the one yeah. album that he didn't. Um, I would probably go... I'm gonna go a 7.75. Okay, that's interesting. I was thinking about a 7.5. Okay. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a strong album, technically. I don't have any... I'm gonna go higher on musical. I don't mm -hmm. think the technical aspect really is anything groundbreaking. No. I think musically it's much more impressive um, than anything else. I, w I would agree. The only thing that I would say is that, like, musically I think dates it more than the technical. Yes. Element, you know? Yes. Um, but, so that's why I would go a little higher with the 7.75. Okay, so now musically, though, I will go higher as well. I'd go a 9 on music. Yeah, I'm going to go an 8. you um, going to go an 8? Yeah, I think when they're really good, like uh, the singles are really, really strong. I don't think overall the album is a weak album, but I'm not crazy about some of the tracks on it. That's fair. I, they're not as punchy as the ones that we've come to love. Yeah, and I, I definitely, I can, I can definitely agree with that. I think that, um, and call me crazy for this, the bias does come from those three singles yes. because they are, they are absolutely phenomenal songs. And Midnight Cruiser is also a really, really solid mm -hmm. track. Um, it does feel like an album that does have some filler in it, but I also would say that the 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 music element of that is not taken away from it no. so much. Uh, you know, in, in the fillers, the filler I think is more so just that the songs are just they're B songs, they're not yeah. A songs. You know, I'm gonna go eight. All right, so I'm I'm going nine. So we're we're pro I think we're at uh, uh seven point nine right now. Yeah. Uh, okay, so lyrics. Here's the thing. I think lyrically, because they, they have a lot of odd references yeah. that are deep cuts in there that you wouldn't fucking know unless you're like deep diving or you're a literature nerd, yes. right? So um, I would go, I would say that they did a really good job at the time at making lyrics, especially with songs like Do It Again uh, and Reeling in the Years, where they can convey a message uh, that is, uh, you know, maybe a little more serious, 
but they're doing it very lightheartedly. Yeah. Dirty Work, for example, you hear that song, it's impossible to not be smiling as you sing yeah. it, but it's a song about being over someone's shit and moving on. Yeah, you feel like Tony Soprano driving, like, I'm a fuck, dude. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and then you have a heart attack. Yeah, or somebody <laughs> tries to shoot you. Or that. Yeah. Uh, okay, so lyrically, I'm going to go an 8.5. Okay, I'm going to go, I think I'm going to go about an 8. I think I'm going to stick at an 8 with it. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. 8? Alright, so we're at an 8 right now. Um, album art. Uh, at the time, it was considered, you know, shocking. Yes. And uh, and I do have a lot of respect for uh, what it looks like. I think that it is a pretty fucking iconic album cover, mm-hmm. especially for the era. Um that being said, nowadays it's not anything really that special. So I would probably go like a 7.5 on the album. Yeah, I'm going to go a 7 on it. I, I think it's a nice album cover. I don't think it's terrible. Um, I think we've reviewed much worse. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even particularly call this album like iconic, like the art iconic. Because, um, you know, Steely Dan, there's, yes, there's a lot of people that are really into music that really listen to Steely Dan, but like, I think if you approached like a, a, a random person. Yes. Yeah. If you were like, whose does this album you take off the steel down? Like, whose album is this? Yeah, that's yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. Uh okay, so yeah, if you're going at a seven? Yeah. Okay, that's fair. So we're at uh we're at a seven point seven five again. Reception. Here's the thing, it was really well received. It, and and especially for their debut album. It was uh really well received and in retrospect it's been well received as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I would go a 9 on reception because I think that over time it has held up to the same standard. Yeah, I'm going to go an 8.5. Okay, so now now we're back up to an 8, and does it hold up? I'd say yes. I'd say most of it holds up, yeah. Yeah. I would say, like, there's some truth in what you said earlier that musically it doesn't sound, um, like, modern at yeah. all. It does sound dated, but in that sense as well, it's like... You could still listen to this and not feel like you like have to seek out a certain genre. Like if I want to listen to like you know like like fifties music, you know certain style of fifties music. If I want to listen to Sinatra, you know I'm in the mood for Sinatra. Yeah. Whereas, like if I want to listen to just classic rock, I can still get into the band and not have to you know feel like I'm stepping into a like a whole different genre. Yeah, and, and I also sense. I also feel like it's it's a nice one to introduce people to yacht rock. Yes. It's like this, and I would say like like. Our like our fucking go to to introduce yes. people would be Christopher Cross, Chris Cross yeah. Which you know, fair because that's uh, I think that his album is I think better than this one. I mean, Kenny Loggins might be a good one too. Kenny Loggins would be a good one, yeah. Uh, you know, there's 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 quite a few good ones, but I feel like this is a this is one that's like if you threw it on, I mean, the best songs are in the first you know four fucking yeah. tracks, so people will find something they enjoy in that. Uh, alright, so 8 out of 10. Nah, that's pretty fair. That's pretty fair. Uh, alright, well, uh, fucking, that was another episode, dude. That another episode, yeah, fucking, once my cats calmed down, I was far less. <laughs> <laughs> Feels weird doing it in my own house, I have to say, I feel a little weird. Yeah, it, uh, but you know what, uh, we'll get used to it, because we'll be fucking, we'll be, we'll be jumping around until we get a permanent space. We'll be jumping around until we get a permanent space. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, thank you for listening. And uh, if you are in the Los Angeles area, December 14th, I'm at the Ice House in Pasadena as part of the Los Angeles Comedy Festival. I'm on the X-Rated show. It's at 10 o'clock. Come on out. It's going to be fun. 
I'm gonna make people laugh in America for the first time. Nice. That's good. They've never laughed before. Uh, they've never laughed. They they don't know what it is to laugh. They've never laughed. They've never laughed. Uh, but no, it's gonna be fun. I'm gonna I'm gonna hang out with the doohickeys when I'm down there. Nice. I'm gonna hang out with uh, Benjamin Font. I might hang out with Porsche a little bit. Nice. Uh, it's gonna be fun. Looking nice. forward to it. Looking forward to it. Uh, yeah. Anyways, that's another episode. Panel contusions.